Jean Villapro Power, born in 1794, was 17 when she left her home in rural France to walk 186 miles to Paris to her dream job as a seamstress. The male cousin, who was supposed to see that she arrived safely, assaulted her and fled with her identity papers. She found shelter in a convent, and by the time she had new travel documents and made it to Paris, the job she was promised as a seamstress had been given to someone else. So she worked for four years as a seamstress's assistant. And then while outfitting a duchess for a royal wedding, she met and fell in love with an English merchant, married and moved with him to Messina, Sicily. There she immersed herself in reading about geology and natural history and set out to study the island's ecosystem. She walked the shoreline and waded into the sea where she observed one of the Earth's most alien life forms, the small octopus Argonauta Argo, known as Paper Nautilus. This is a drawing that she did. She taught herself to be an artist. This is a drawing of the Paper Nautilus. This creature had fascinated naturalists like Aristotle and Leonardo da Vinci with the mystery of its spiral shell. They wondered whether the animal made it or like the hermit crab inherited it as a hand-me-down. Observing Argonauts in the wild is incredibly difficult. They're really skittish and they flee the surface and plunge into the depths as soon as they feel they're being approached and they puff a cloud of ink between themselves and their perceived predator. So you can't really see where they go. So to bypass their shyness, she designed and constructed the world's first offshore research station, a system of immense cages that she anchored off the coast, complete with observation windows through which she could study the Argonauts undisturbed. Every day she prepared food for them. She rowed her boat to the cages and knelt at the platform to make notes and drawings. For closer observation, Jeanne invented the first aquarium. Her home became a marine biology lab stacked with vast tanks. She started with the obvious yet radical insight that you cannot understand the living morphology of a creature by studying dead specimens which is how all the naturalists had studied them at the time. To find out when and how the Argonaut gets to have a shell, she reasoned that you have to observe it from birth. So in a series of groundbreaking experiments, she began in 1883, the final year of her 30s. She solved the ancient mysteries of whether, how, and when the Argonaut makes its spiral home. She demonstrated by unequivocal proofs that the female Argonauta octopus is the builder of its shell. In one experiment, she made a small puncture in the shell of an adult, of an adult female to see whether and how the, the animal would repair itself and what that might reveal about its intelligence. In an era when science was yet to recognize the consciousness of non-human animals. 
She watched in marvel as the octopus, octopus protruded its front arms and sweeping the silvery membranes previously thought to function as sails over the puncture like a windshield wiper. Seal it back into cohesion with a glutinous substance, the chemical composition of which she analyzed and determined to be identical to the calcium carbonate of the original shell. And it was even stronger than the original shell. Next, she developed an experiment that only someone who had spent years as a seamstress sewing pieces of fabric together might consider. She decided to see whether the Argonaut could repair its shell using spare parts. She broke off a piece of an adult shell, but this time she placed it in the tank next to, its, next to it fragments from other shells. The Argonaut rushed to the pieces and began feeling them out with its arms, searching for the suitable shape. And then it applied it to its own shell and began the work of welding to those of its existing shell to patch the hole. Since women were excluded from the scientific establishment, unable to attend universities or speak at learned societies, her research was transmitted to the world by proxy. In 1839, Sir Richard Owen, England's preeminent scientist in the era before Charles Darwin, read one of her letters and presented her findings to the London Zoological Society. Her research was a revelation. By the end of her long life, she belonged to more than a dozen scientific societies. Her research, her research not only illuminated an enduring mystery, about the physiology and biology of a particular species of octopus, but through her experiments on shell repair, laid the groundwork for the study of octopus intelligence, which has forever changed our understanding of consciousness itself. I believe that she and Craig Foster of My Octopus Teacher would have a great deal to say to each other. And Ringo Starr with his octopus garden, that would be quite the meetup. <laughs> would you agree that both Craig Foster and Jean Villapro Power have great accomplishments, that they did great things? I would, I would say that. But what I wonder is, do you think while they were doing them, they thought they were great things? And I don't mean in the sense of like, oh, this is great, groovy man. I don't mean it that way, right? I mean, in the historical sense, like, did they think, oh, this is going to be known in the science world as the one who discovered all these things about the paper Nautilus, or the one who developed the who filmed the developing relationship with an unders undersea creature that can't help but move people. Did they have any idea the perspective that time would bring? I think they did these things because they were pulled in those directions and they followed some pull or push that they felt. And they may have thought, oh, this is cool. I'm so lucky I get to do this. But it seems to me that they might they might have thought of it as something they just did, something rather small, actually. And they did it out of a sense of great love, a sense, a love and fascination with the sea, 
with life. Perhaps as Mother Teresa advised, they did small things with great love. Love. Love, man, it'll get you. This month of February, our transformational theme is the path of love. In nine years of Soul Matters, which is what we, what we, the program we use for our themes, this theme has been suggested for February every single year. But people get to vote on what they think the theme should be, and they have never voted on love for February. But this year, for the first time, love was the number one choice. Maybe three years of pandemic living changes things. As someone at the worship planning meeting said, there's just so much about love. I could preach it every Sunday this, this month on love and maybe next month and the next and still not say all that needs to be said, still not cover everything. So vast it is. So I encourage you to engage with the small group packet, even if you aren't in a small group. It's in the What's Happening This Week email every week. Check it out. Yesterday in the Starting Point program, we talked about one of the UU spiritual practices being opening to life's gifts. It's so easy to get in the grind of life and just exist, to get up in the morning, work, go to school, sleep or not, get up each morning to do it all again. But opening to life's gifts, ponder that for a moment. What would that look like? What would that look like for you to open to life's gifts? Yes, open to the gift of life, open to the joy of being alive and gratitude for that. But also the gifts that life bring, brings to us, what we have because we're alive, the gift of gratitude, the gift of emotion, the beauty of the natural world, the desire and passion to be generative and creative, to want to give something back, the gift of growth, consciousness, grace, connection, forgiveness, presence, joy, and yes, love, and hope. As Unitarian Universalists, we practice opening ourselves to receive those. It is one of our spiritual practices. Having received those, opening ourselves to those, we know that we want to share them with others. UU theologian Rebecca Parker says that we get so filled up that it can't help but spill over. And in that spilling over, we can't help but share that with others, the joy of being alive. We share it with those we are close to, but we are also called to share that with others to show that justice is what love looks like in public. 
opening to life's gifts for ourselves creates an opening in us that having experience, we want that everyone should have it. So that the idea of injustice becomes intolerable. We must let our love spill out and spill over. I used to think that in order to truly love others, that we had to love ourselves first. I even preached about it once when I was 20 years old in a small Baptist church. Now, I didn't think of it as preaching at the time, but I was definitely in that pulpit, so I'm counting it now. But um, I realize now it could have been thought of as heresy. But UUs are a bunch of heretics, so maybe I was a UU way back then. But they probably gave me grace in that Baptist church because I was young. I used the verse from the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself. And I said um, that that meant that we were called to love ourselves and that we, we couldn't really truly not love another until we loved ourselves. But for, the, for a couple of decades now, my thinking has changed. I think that loving others is a way we learn to love ourselves. Loving others has allowed me to more easily love myself. And then here comes Lizzo. <laughs> Melissa Vivian Jefferson was born in Detroit, Michigan and moved to Houston, Texas when she was 10. She is now 34 years old. Known professionally as Lizzo, she's a singer, a rapper, and a classically trained flutist, or flautist if you prefer the British. You may have, may have heard of her recently when she played the 200-year-old um, crystal flute that was gifted to President James Madison. To put it mildly, some people lost their minds <laughs> over that. But I digress. Back to love and Lizzo. How many people here already love Lizzo? Several, yes, me too. Lizzo is a body positive, love and joy. Her concerts, I have heard, I haven't been there, are filled with this. So if you are not familiar with Lizzo, you may want to start. Now I'm gonna move through this next part slowly so you can follow because it's very involved. There's a person on Twitter named Angela Mayfield, whose Twitter handle is Pink Rock, ready for this? Octopus, just to carry that whole octopus theme through, right? So she posted, you can move that, Bob, thanks. She posted RuPaul. You know RuPaul, right? As in RuPaul's um, drag race probably the most famous drag queen ever. So award-winning and all that. So Pink Rock Octopus post, RuPaul has been telling us for years, if you don't love yourself, how are you going to love somebody else? And we all agreed. But then Lizzo switched it up on the Tiny Desk concert. She said, if you can love me, you can love yourself. And I can't stop thinking about that, writes Pink Rock Octopus. She goes on. One says that the love you give others is false 
invalid, not real love because you don't, because you don't give it to yourself as well. The other says that because you are capable of loving others, caring for others, you are capable of extending that affection to yourself and you're deserving of it too. Lizzo really just delivered a sermon about grace and about how you don't have to be worthy of being loved because the act of loving and the mere state of being loved makes you worthy. The act of loving and the mere state of being loved makes you worthy. Pink Octopus writes, it's not hyperbole when I say Lizzo is saving lives. And this is what our UU theology says also. I'm going to guess that everyone in this room loves someone and is loved by someone. That makes you worthy of love. Open this gift that life offers. Open it and share it. Amen and blessed be.